I'm so glad that you are here this morning, and for those who are joining us online, I'm so glad that you have joined us as well. Uh, what a great morning already this morning. The music, uh, all of the, ki the kids and the parents and the dedication, just an exciting to see God working and moving in so many different ways, and I'm glad that uh, we've been able to be a part of that today. I, uh, we, we, we talk about this every week, and I think it's super important that we always keep what we are about in front of us. Uh, we exist. The reason that we gather, the reason that we have groups, the reason that we serve is that we want everyone to experience God's unconditional love, and we believe that God's unconditional love is found in the person of Jesus. And we've been talking about Jesus all year. We've been focusing on who Jesus is all year. Revealing Jesus has been our theme. And, and if, you, if you're new with us today or have just checked in today, um, don't worry. We're going to talk about Jesus today as well. And we're in the middle of the series called I Choose because we believe that when you encounter Jesus, you need to make a choice. It's an important choice that you need to make. Do you realize... And this must be true because I found this on the internet. Uh, do you realize that we make 35,000 decisions a day? The average person makes 35,000. Now, here's my question with this. How in the world did they come up with that number? I mean, they like track some, like every time you make a decision, I want you to put a little check mark and then we're going to average these together over, you know, time or whatever. 35,000, that's a lot of choices. And I think that we live in a day and age where we are faced with probably more choices than have ever been. I, I do have a confession to make this morning. I am a market basket junkie. Like ever since market basket, who else loves the market basket? Oh yeah, yeah, there's my fellow followers. Love the market basket, man. I, but it is overwhelming sometimes when you go to the market basket. So I discovered that the market basket has like over 20 varieties of pasta sauce. Now, now, for those Italians in the room, don't hate me. I buy jar pasta sauce. But I made it my goal. I made it my goal to try every different pasta. So every time I go into Market Basket, I'm like, yeah, we're trying this one this week. But we, are, we can be overwhelmed, and we can be just frozen by all of the choices that we make. Some of these choices are small choices, right? Some of them are regarding what toothpaste do I use, and do I squeeze that toothpaste from the middle or the bottom? Uh, some of them are toilet paper, over, under. Now, now this, this one may not be a small choice, it may be a little more important, but it's still a small choice in the grand scheme of life. Are you a Pats fan or are you a Brady's fan? Come on. No, the answer is not both. There are some decisions that we make that are weightier than others. You know, like, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? Because those have a longer lasting impact. Some choices are expected. Like if you choose to go out to eat, you have to select what kind of food you want. Then you have to select where you're going to go, which is also a mountain to climb sometimes. And then once you get to the restaurant, you have to choose what you're going to eat. Those are all expected choices. But then there are some choices that are unexpected, that catch you by surprise. What kind of treatment am I going to get? Or when I lose my job or get laid off, what am I going to do next? Those are ex choices that kind of catch us off guard. And we're going to listen in this morning on a conversation that Jesus has with a man 
who is faced with what I believe was an unexpected choice. And so we're going to be in John chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first 21 verses today. So John chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 21, and we're going to kind of break this up and talk about it as we go. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. I think right here, Nicodemus has had something scripted that he wanted to say to Jesus, and either he runs out of words or Jesus kind of interrupts him here. But what I want to pause here is I want to look a little bit at who Nicodemus is. So Nicodemus is is a Jew, and and he's a part of God's chosen people, the Israelites. And and they've been following God. They've identified as God's chosen people, and they believe, many of the Jews believe, that they, not just because they were God's chosen people, but there was something special that was going to happen to them. Not only was Nicodemus a Jew, but he was also a Pharisee which meant that he was a rule keeper. He, he loved, he lived life to keep the rules, to follow the law. Not only Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he was a teacher of the law. In fact, many scholars believe that Nicodemus, was his title was kind of like teacher of teachers. He was the main primary voice when it came to the law. So he was this well-respected, well-known teacher. And the other thing, not only was he a Jew, not only did he follow the law, not only did he teach the law, but he enforced the law. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. So his whole life centered around the law, and that's who Nicodemus was. And I think that's why you see Nicodemus coming at night. And and I'm not sure necessarily, I know a lot of people believe that he didn't want to be seen with Jesus, but I'm wondering secretly if maybe part of Nicodemus's was to kind of protect Jesus a little bit. But, but he visits at night. He comes to see Jesus at night. And, and he addresses Jesus in this very respectful manner, this word rabbi, which basically means teacher. And, and to Nicodemus, the reason I think that he's coming to see Jesus is Jesus is a bit of an enigma to him. Like, how can this unlearned carpenter from a marginal community in Nazareth, how could he be doing all these great things? How could he be so wise in the way of God? There's something unique about him, and I need to find out more about him, and I think that's what drives Nicodemus to to come. I think he's honestly trying to find out who Jesus is. Did he really, and and I think maybe even in the back of the mind, I I think in the back of his mind, he's wondering, could he really be the one, the Messiah? He's curious, and to quote the great theologian Ted Lasso, it's better to be curious than judgmental. And, and I think this is often where our journey with Jesus begins. We encounter him. Maybe it's through a friend or a family member or something we've, we've read or something we've listened to. Maybe you are here this morning and you're hearing about Jesus for the first time, or maybe You've been a part of a church for a long time, and you've heard the name Jesus, you know a lot about him, but you've never really encountered him or experienced him. And and the fact is, there is something unique about Jesus. 
He isn't like any other belief system. He isn't like any other religion. And I really hope that today you see that, that he's more than what you may expect. So Jesus responds to Nicodemus, and he says this. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they were born again. What a weird response. I mean, that's not what Nicodemus was talking about. He's giving Jesus all these platitudes. You're a great teacher. You must have, God must be with you. And Jesus' response is, you can't be in unless you're born again. And I'm wondering if this, like, like just hits Nicodemus square in the face. Like, here I am. I'm, I'm a teacher of the law. Like, I'm an enforced law. I've lived this life. And secretly, I think he's seeing, beginning to see that Jesus is saying, no, you're, you're on the outside. You're, you're not what I've come to accomplish. Reading on. Nicodemus' response kind of indicates this. He says, how can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. So he's thinking like this natural birth thing. Like how in the world, as a grown man, can I go back into my mom and be born again, right? And I'm wondering when Jesus says this, if Nicodemus' heart doesn't sink a little bit. And not for the reason of what I mentioned before about the fact that I'm an outsider. I may be, be considered an outsider with what Jesus is doing. I'm wondering if his heart sinks a little bit because he thinks, oh my gosh, he's not at all what I expected. He's actually kind of a wacko. Like, he, he may be a little crazy. That even, like, maybe throws him more into a tailspin. This can't be what you mean literally, Jesus, right? And maybe this has also been your experience with Jesus, and you've read something he said, or you've heard somebody talk about something that he said, and it doesn't line up, or it conflicts with where you're at, where you're living, or, 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 or whatever, and it just doesn't seem to be right, it just stands out, or, or worse... You've run into somebody who says that they follow Jesus, but their life doesn't live anything like what Jesus is. And maybe you have an incomplete picture of who Jesus is, just like Nicodemus does. Let me just make this clear, especially for your moms here. Fortunately, this is not what Jesus means at all, this whole, like, rebirth thing, right? So Jesus explains this just a little bit more. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they were born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but, not the, spirit, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. When it comes to this verse, there's a lot of misunderstandings, and, and I, I believe there are misunderstandings of what Jesus is describing here. And all three of these references, uh, water, spirit, and wind, are all references to the Spirit. You know, sometimes we get confused and we think that Jesus is talking about two different baptisms or whatever. He's, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. In this passage, in the work of the Holy Spirit, and specifically, if you look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, 
the prophet Isaiah refers to the Spirit as water. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That's just one of many examples. And the wind, the reference here to the wind is the Spirit is going to do what the Spirit does. No one controls the Spirit. He goes about with this life-saving work on his own. He is not dependent on us. He works on his own. And it's not by our works, it's not by our striving, or by our lineage, or by our achievement, or by our manipulation, that we can get the Spirit to do what the Spirit does in our lives. We are wholly and completely dependent on the Spirit to, for us to be able to experience this new birth. He is the one that moves us closer to accepting Jesus. That's what he's saying here in this passage. And I don't know about you, but for me, when it comes to telling others about Jesus, that takes a ton of pressure off. I, I think a lot of times we think that we have to be the one to change somebody's mind, to try to bring them to Jesus or try to force them into Jesus. And what this tells us, what, what I believe that Jesus is, is explaining here is the fact that, you know, we live like Jesus. We follow him by the way that we live in such a way that represents him well that follows him well. And, and, and as people have questions about, why are you so different? Why are you kind in a world that's not very kind right now? Why are you so loving? Why do you care about me so deeply? Why do you spend time with me when nobody else will? People begin to wonder that is so different than what we see and experience today. And that gives us an opportunity to be able to share about why we're so different, because somebody has changed our life. It's nothing that we've done, and it makes people curious about him, and it gives an opportunity for the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, which is to work in the lives of others. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the, the church in Ephesus. He writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, he says, when he describes who we were before Jesus, he says, once we too were foolish in disobedience, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But, but when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins. This is what the Spirit does. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Bottom line of what Jesus is saying here is you cannot save yourself. It's the work of the Spirit. And Nicodemus at this point is really confused. He says, how, how can this be? Nicodemus asks, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very, true, I very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak in heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and I just got to, again, put myself in Nicodemus' shoes. Like, he, 
he has studied, he, he's probably memorized, not just studied, he's probably memorized the Old Testament. And, and all of these promises that God has made, all of these things that he has said, and, and he encounters Jesus, and Jesus begins to tell him, it's not about following the law. You can't obtain right standing with God by just obeying his rules. There's something more that's required, and I imagine this has got to be earth-shattering for him. It's more than just a paradigm shift. It's, it's got to be just this huge blow. He, you know, he thought he had lived his life right. He had built his whole life around the law. And Jesus is telling him, it's not about that at all. But Jesus isn't finished yet. And Jesus goes on to say probably what I would describe here in the next few verses as, as maybe a verse that if even... If you're brand new to church, you may have either seen this like on a sign or on a, at a football game, or maybe you've heard this said before, or maybe even as a child, if you were a part of church, had, had heard this shared. But so he goes on and describes just as he goes on and says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And you're like reading this and like, what's this thing about snakes? Like, this is really, really weird. Like, why are we talking about snakes, you know, in the middle of this conversation? Well, just to describe what Jesus is talking about, it's really a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us. And it's found in Numbers chapter 21, and this, the children of Israel, God's people have been led out of Israel, or out of Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and God is providing for them. He provides manna and quail. And, and just as the Israelites do over and over and over again, if you read Exodus and Numbers, you'll see they complain over and over. Well, this time they complain both about the food and the leadership, which is something people generally are very good about complaining about, right? And, and as a response to their complaining, God sends venomous snakes to them, and people are being bitten by these snakes, and they're actually dying. And so God instructs the leader of the people, a man named Moses, to make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and hang it before the people, set it before the people. And anybody who gets bit by a snake, if, he looks, if they look at this snake on a pole, they're instantly cured. It's just this weird story, right? I mean, just kind of like when you're reading through it, it's like, well, that's weird. Like, how does this fit into things? It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us, that Jesus is going to hang on a cross. And the poison that we have is something called sin in our lives. And the fact that he hangs on the cross and we turn our attention to him and we're drawn to him and we accept him, then this poison that's in us, this sin is removed, it's washed white as snow, as that passage in Titus tells us. And, and let me just say this too. You know, the question often is, why do we have the Old Testament? It's old, right? I mean, it says right there in the title, Old Testament. Why don't we just talk about New Testament? The reason that the Old Testament exists is because the Old Testament always points to Jesus. The stories in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus and who Jesus is going to be. And throughout the Old Testament, it's super important that we continue to, continue to look at that and see how Jesus is part of the entire Bible. Anyway, Jesus continues, and this is the verse I was referring to. For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. 
because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is, like I said, probably one of the most well-known verses in Scripture. Probably the second verse I memorized as a kid. Jesus wept was the first one. And then this one. But I think that this translation kind of misses it a little bit. The, the NET, I think, makes what this says a little clearer. It says, for this way, for this is the way, God loved the world. The way that God loved the world was he sent his one and only son. And it really shifts things if you think about it. God's love for the world is demonstrated by sending Jesus to the world. To die a death that we deserve, to have a life that we don't deserve, so that we can have a relationship, a restored relationship with him. And this is the choice that Jesus presents to Nicodemus. You know, it is not what you've done, Nicodemus. It's not how you've lived. It's not how you follow the law. It's through me that you can have a restored relationship with God. And, and then Jesus concludes this conversation with Nicodemus. He says this. He says, this is the verdict. Light, Jesus, has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who, does not, who, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, it, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And I love this closing statement because I think it really bookends this conversation. On the, on the front end, you have Nicodemus who has lived this upright, moral, right life in, in an attempt to earn favor with God. But, but that's not what it's all about. This new birth doesn't come from the fact that you've, you've lived this righteous, up, upright, moral life. And on the back end of it, you have this conversation where it talks about there are people who have really, really messed up things. They've done unspeakable things. They've, 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 they've just been broken in so many different ways. Things have happened to them that are just unfair in life. There are things that they have done that they feel so, carry so much guilt and shame over that how in the world can I be a part of this? And this, what Jesus is saying is, this new birth is for you too. And, and the bottom line is this. What Jesus says is no matter how good you've been or how moral you are, or if you consider yourself to be a good person or you think, you've lived a, you think you live a blessed life, it's not good enough. <laughs> you still need this new birth. And on the other hand, no matter how messed up you are or how much you've messed up or what's been done to you or how badly you, you're broken, you can never be beyond his love. And you can experience this new birth. That's good news. What you have done cannot save you. Nor what can what you have done can't keep you from being saved. Only accepting Jesus saves you and reconciles you back to God. You, you see, this is the truth of the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus came looking for a teacher but he found a savior. I want to look at this just a little bit differently before we conclude this morning. Through a little different lens because there's a lot 
of weight right now around this whole born-again conversation, right? And let me just say this. Born-again was never intended to be a label. Think about it this way. Babies are born into a family. And, and from our Western perspective on things, this doesn't mean a whole lot, right? Because our identity often is caught up in individualistic things. But in a non-Western culture where this is written, family is everything. Family is identity. Family is tied directly to identity. And when I say identity, I mean your sense of yourself, how you view yourself, and your sense of your worth. And, and what Jesus is conveying to us and to Nicodemus in this image of a new birth or being born again is that when you accept Jesus and you follow him, it changes our identity. You are no longer identified or you're no longer found in the things you try to find your identity in. You're no longer found in your identity of your family or your generation or your personality or your relationships or your career or being moral or good or right or even in your addiction or in your mess or in your sin. That no longer defines you. Jesus defines you because what Jesus has done for us on the cross that he paid the price for our sin we are now given a new identity. Our, our, our new identity is found in him and him alone. I love what Tim Keller says. He says this, your identity is received, not achieved. And Paul further states this when he writes in Galatians 2.20. He says this, I have been crucified. Myself, my old self has been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is my identity. And let me just share one thing that this does that I think is so important that we grasp this morning. When I was nine years old, I discovered something really important. Where my mom held the semi-sweet, where my mom hid the semi-sweet uh, chocolate chips in her house. And uh, let me just say, a bag of those things goes really fast. So one day my mom went to bake chocolate chip cookies and discovered that the chocolate chips were pretty much gone. And so she confronted my sister and I. My sister was six at the time. And, uh, you know, both of us kind of, my sister had no idea what was going on, so she was innocent. But I just kept, like, kept my mouth shut, like, I'm not, I'm not fessing up to this. Now, I know my mom knew it was me because I was the only one old enough in the house to reach the chocolate chips. Now, it could have been my dad. Could have pulled it off of my dad. But it was my, you know. But my mom just basically says, you know what, it's all right. It's all right. I'm going to move on. But you know what? For a week, I carried the guilt of that. Like, I just, like, it just, like, weighed on me. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I wasn't, I'd been found out. And finally, after that week, I went to my mom, and I said, Mom, it was me. And it just, like, released this guilt that I was carrying. And, you know, I've always wondered where confession fits into the church. You know, yeah, we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. But why is it when we mess up, even after we follow Christ, we still carry this guilt and shame? We know we've been forgiven, but we still carry that. I think that's what confession does. Conf confession releases, releases that guilt and shame. When we confess to God what we have done, we admit that, or when we confess to one another. We don't have to be tied our identity is not caught up in what we have done. We have this amazing freedom. 
Again, this is what this says. You know, in, in John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, he says this, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light so they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Look, God already knows. <laughs> You're not hiding from him. And it releases this guilt and shame from us. I don't know about you, but man, I want that kind of freedom. Guilt and shame is horrible to live with. But when we find our identity in Jesus, we don't have to live under that anymore. We can freely live a confessional life. We can freely live transparent with one another and vulnerable to one another because we've been forgiven. I don't know this for sure, but I believe because of this conversation and because Nicodemus probably continued to follow Jesus from a distance, I think that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. I can't prove this. I can't, like, go back and say, well, this is chapter and verse, but I do know this. If you read on through the rest of the book of John and you get to chapter 19, there are two specific individuals that are mentioned that come to the cross after Jesus has died. Joseph Arimathea, who asked for Jesus' body, and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is mentioned as taking Jesus down from the cross and wrapping and preparing his body for burial. Now, this is significant because in that culture in that day, that was a job that usually slaves would do. And here's Nicodemus, no longer identified as teacher of the law, no longer identified as enforcer of the law, but someone who's caring for Jesus. And my question this morning is simply this. What is keeping you from choosing him? We're going to enter into a time that we celebrate every week. We call it communion, and really it's something that Jesus has asked us to do as followers of him is just remember the sacrifice that he made on the cross so that we could experience his freedom and forgiveness that he offers us. And we do this by participating in two elements, bread that represents the body that was broken, his body that was broken for us, and juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, that washes our sins whiter than snow. And these are represented in these trays that are on the aisle. Um, there are two cups in each, each uh, section, so make sure if you go to grab one. In fact, you're free right now if you want to. You follow Jesus, just grab a cup and... Um, just participate in what, in what he has done for us this morning. It's a way that we remember this um, incredible and amazing sacrifice that he's made for us. And as you're moving around, I'm going to pray for us this morning. Father, thank you so much for the sacrifice that you have made for us on the cross, that the opportunity that we have to choose you, God, to be a part of your family Father, the freedom from sin and the freedom from shame, the freedom from guilt, Father, all those things are possible because of what you have done for us on the cross. We thank you for Jesus this morning. Father, I choose, I choose Jesus. I choose to be a part of what he has done.
thank you, God, for what you have done for us. And thank you for the life that we get to live because of that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.